0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And... I was going to say that it's almost Christmas time, but I don't know exactly what day this episode is going to be airing. We haven't fully worked that out yet. So it's sometime within a couple of weeks of Christmas, right?
1: Well, Christmas Day, but certainly it falls within the month of December, or like the the three month radius of <laughs> surrounding uh, December twenty uh-huh. fifth. So it's Christmas, right? It's the holidays.
0: Uh, bells will be ringing, meaning doorbells with deliveries, because that's mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of Christmas that's going on this year. Yep, yep. Uh, a supply chain straining holiday season. Yes. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, you you wanted to talk about some Christmas-related inventions. And I got to say, we turned up some surprisingly weird and funny stuff uh, on this subject. I I, I was pleasantly surprised with where this went.
1: Yeah, last year in the Invention feed, back when Invention was its own podcast, we focused on some popular toys, where they came from, how they were invented, uh, things that went under the tree. This year, all of the inventions we're discussing are things that go on the tree, Uh, which is, uh, and and yeah, these turn out to be quite interesting. Do you have a tree up right now,
0: Joe? We do. It is fake. It is made primarily of petroleum products. So uh, what was once ancient organisms floating in the seas have settled down and become oil. And now they are plastic and they're in my home and they make it festive. Oh, nice. Well, we too have our tree up. It is a A live
1: tree uh, or at least one that was was alive at some point and it was cut free from the earth and uh, so yeah now it is uh, in my living room and i run a hose in from outside to give it more water uh, every day or so were
0: you were you always a live tree person or was that a transition i've just always been a fake tree family my whole life we were always a, a live tree family and we would do this thing I think this is something my
1: family picked up in Canada and then continued to do and that is for a for the the, the tree stand instead of having an actual tree stand we had a bucket of rocks so you'd put the the tree <laughs> stump in the bucket and then you'd put big sizable rocks around it you know to fill it up but there's still space for water and then we'd pour water in and uh, I think we did that till one year uh, the the tree Tipped over and rocks and water went everywhere, and then they decided, well, let's let's see about getting an artificial tree, and then they made the switch. But uh, I've done both here in my own household. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's a trade off, right? Like, cause the there's a nice smell to the the to the the fresh cut tree, mm-hmm. uh, but then you have to pick up the needles, you have to inevitably do a little sawing on it to make it function in your house. So, eh, I don't know. I can
0: go either way. I think conceptually, I'm very much a live tree person. I've just never in actuality been one. That's that's the power of habit and the power of family tradition, right? Like yeah. if you were to present me these options afresh as if, I, you know, I'd never celebrated Christmas before, I would definitely go live tree. But now I think I'm going to be plastic to the grave. <laughs> I used to like the idea of doing a small tree because if you do a small little tree –
1: it's less uh, less work, right? But now we have all of these. We've accumulated all of these these family heirloom uh, decorations. So, I've, you know, we've got to put those on the tree. So, you got to have a large enough tree
0: to hold them. That's a very good point. As the, as the ornaments that come as Christmas gifts that people give you when they don't know what else to give you for Christmas, as they accumulate over the seasons, they they really do start weighing down those branches. <laughs>
1: All right. So like I say, everything that we're discussing in this episode, all the inventions are things that go on a Christmas tree. So we really need to lay the groundwork, especially for our first invention, Christmas tree lights, electric Christmas tree lights. Now, we always discuss what came before. Well, I mean, obviously, we have to talk about just the origin of the Christmas tree uh, as much as we understand it. Um now, there's a couple of different ways to consider this. You know, you can think about the, the use of control fire itself for ceremonial purposes. Uh, this has a role in every culture. But here we're talking more specifically about the use of illumination technology
0: combined with the, the form of a tree or an actual tree. Now, I know I read a legendary account. I, something tells me this, this might not be necessarily true, but a legendary account involving Martin Luther and the origins of lighting up a Christmas tree. Yep. Um, so, so this story, I guess, would post-date the invention of the Christmas tree itself because it assumes there's already a tree inside the house. But the story is that Martin Luther is out wandering one night, you know, the Protestant reformer Martin mm-hmm. Luther. I'm sure he's, uh, he's composing in his mind some extremely scatological screed against the pope. And then he, he's wandering and he sees trees uh, and he sees the stars behind the trees twinkling uh, and shining through the branches. And he's like, oh, how could I recreate that at home? And the idea he comes up with is, well, let's put a bunch of candles in the branches of this evergreen.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful story, but uh, as far as I can tell, it's just a story. Yeah, it's just made up. Uh, Yeah, much like another story, another myth uh, concerning uh, St. Boniface thwarting a a pagan ceremony and somehow turning it into a Christmas tree. Again, uh, you know, it it makes for a cool origin story, but there's nothing to it. Now, there's certainly, uh, you get into the the myth-making about the origins of the Christmas tree. Another thing to keep in mind is that we have a lot of what you can think of as auxiliary uh, traditions. Uh, For instance, in England, prior to the use of Christmas trees, there were 15th and 16th century traditions involving bringing holly and ivy in during the winter and doing things with holly and ivy. There are uh, druidic traditions concerning mistletoe, and we've explored those on the, the podcast before. The winter maypole tradition has also some similarities, according to historians.
0: Yeah, the general idea is that you could find something that was green in the wintertime, some kind of evergreen branch, you know, if it was pine needles or, or holly or something. And you'd bring that into the home around the winter solstice, and the green decoration would help distract the family from the barren misery that is wintertime. But uh, Christmas tree traditions themselves, where you'd actually cut down an evergreen tree and then bring it inside the house, or at least put it somewhere near the house or in the barn or in the home, uh, that appears to begin among German-speaking peoples, maybe around the 16th century. Though, again, it's a little complicated because that seems to emerge from similar older traditions. But, but the Christmas tree itself looks like it, it comes uh, around the 1500s. And this was not the only Christmas decoration tradition among German-speaking peoples at the time. Another German classic was what came to be known as the Christmas Pyramid, though I think (laughs) this name comes after Napoleon's adventures in in Egypt. Uh, It's not strictly a pyramid like the ones at Giza. Uh, You've seen this before. It's sort of a tapering miniature tower with platforms populated by angels with trumpets and other critters of that stripe. It's a little diorama.
1: Okay. I, you know, I don't know that I've seen this. I I think I've seen pyramid type constructions where they use poinsettia plants
0: and kind of arrange them like that. Uh, but I think one thing you could do when you're building your Christmas pyramid is put some evergreen branches on it, you know, kind of spruce it up and like, oh, it, maybe it's not winter. Here's something green.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, uh, slay all the servants who helped you erect
0: it and place right. them under the under the pyramid, right? Yeah. And um, scoop the brains out of the angels through the nose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, you know, a, a, an ancient Egyptian themed uh, Christmas tree would actually be quite lovely. I'm not sure who you would put at the top. Maybe Osiris. Maybe you could put Otten, the sun disc. I don't know. There's, God, there's so much you could do. Now I want to make one, except I, I would not be permitted to do that. Now, I was looking more into the uh, the, the history here, of the tree, and you, you pointed to the 16th century origins in Germany, and, and certainly that seems to be when it was. It, we can really point to it and say, like, here is the Christmas tree tradition uh, in action. Uh, but I was also reading from uh, a book by Judith Flanders, Christmas: A Biography. Uh, she's a historian and writer with a specialty. Uh, her, her main specialty, I think, is Victorian history, and she says that we can we can think of uh, of many of these earlier traditions as again precursors to the christmas tree and an association that had been forged between winter traditions and the tree uh, were already growing around this time especially in germany the origins she says seem to take us back to the early 15th century in germany there are records of a 1419 decorated tree in freiburg decorated with apples flower paste w- wafers tinsel and gingerbread flower paste wafers oh boy <laughs> <laughs> So Flanders points to documented traditions of paradise plays performed at the time and performed around Christmas. They use that would have used an evergreen fir with apples tied to their branches in place of the tree of knowledge, a.k.a. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, of course, is important to Judeo-Christian
0: traditions and tied to the world tree myths in general. Right so in the paradise play this would be reproducing the the uh the myth of the garden of Eden where Eve is tempted by the serpent to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which uh, Adam and Eve have been forbidden from from partaking of they can eat of the tree of life and they you know live forever but they can't know what's right and wrong and and once they eat of the fruit then they realize they're naked and all kinds of bad stuff happens god gets very angry
1: Yeah yeah it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a whole scene Trust me. Uh, But (laughs) at any rate, this would have been a a tree standing in to represent that mythic tree. And the decorations would have included wool thread, again, straw, apples, things like nuts and pretzels. Pretzels? uh, Yeah, pretzels, which makes sense, right? You can make things out of pretzels, make
0: curious shapes and all. It sounds good
1: and Mm -hmm. also feels authentically
0: German. This brings up a question I was talking about with Rachel recently, and something about this has me still a little bit steaming are you not supposed to eat a gingerbread house? I'm getting mixed signals about what the whole deal with a gingerbread house is because if you're not supposed to eat it, why are you making it entirely out of edible foods? Uh I guess that's a, a, a redundancy. Out of edible things. And if you are supposed to eat it, why is it treated uh, I don't know. I I'm very confused.
1: Well, I guess part of it is that it's not just, you know, cookie or cake, it's load-bearing cookie or cake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Yeah, I was always told, you know, we're making a gingerbread house, but you can't eat it because the gingerbread is obviously just sitting out on the table
0: and Mm -hmm. is not fit for consumption at this point. You know, when you turn the lights off at night, you go to bed and you nestle in in, and get all cozy, the roaches come out. They crawl all over the gingerbread house. So they eat little bits (laughs) off of it and then they scurry away in the morning. So if you go and take a bite, you just know who you're eating after. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I, it's just That's all a good reason not to trust it. Unless, I guess, you're very controlling with your gingerbread house. It goes into the refrigerator when you're not using it. I mean, I could see that as working and that could be fun. But otherwise, you don't eat the house. You eat the men. You eat the gingerbread men. <laughs> Voiced by Gary Busey. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So. This tree is put, becomes popular. In fact, it becomes so popular it outlasts the popularity of these paradise plays, and it becomes this holiday tradition. It is the it is the Christmas tree. It is the the bomb. So, uh, Flanders writes that the oldest Christmas tree market was apparently in Strasbourg, just over the current German border in France, in the seventeenth century. And Flanders points to the first decorated indoor Christmas tree as, uh, being, uh, as, to, as, as being tied to 1605. Again, the decorations seem to include things like apples and sweets. And they became p- quite popular in the Strasbourg region with, uh, actually, there were 15th century laws put in place at one point to limit the number of trees per household.
0: Oh, this is not the last place we're going to encounter laws regulating Christmas trees.
1: Yeah. I mean, people, you know, they get upset about the war on Christmas, but Wars must be waged against Christmas to keep it from getting out of control uh, right. because
0: it will. This is a centuries long tradition. Yeah.
1: <laughs> now, uh, speaking of, of the traditions, though, uh, uh, you know, we, we often, especially here in the United States uh, and, and, by, and uh, certainly in England, you think of it as being, you know, firmly rooted in English speaking peoples, right? But the tradition didn't actually travel from Germany to England till the final quarter of the 18th century. Flanders points to the Goethe novel, The Sorrows of Young uh, Werther from 1774, which was translated into English and includes a description of a tree, not only with organic decorations, but with lights. Uh, ah. So I had, to, I had to look it up and uh, you can find this text in full on the Internet. Uh, and, uh, but it, it, here's the, 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 the juicy part. Quote, he began talking of the delight of the children and of that age when the sudden appearance of the christmas tree decorated with fruits and sweet meats and lighted up with wax candles causes such transports of
0: joy the tree lighted up with wax candles is going to cause such transports of something. <laughs> yes. So um, another big thing that was involved
1: in the, the transfer of the Christmas tree tradition uh, to England. In 1789, the German wife of George III suggested they erect, quote, an illuminated tree, according to the German fashion. And, and uh, so you, you see it making the, the leap over into England. Mm-hmm. Now, as for the Christmas tree in North America, this is interesting. Flanders writes that it may have been here in North America as soon as 1786. Quote, in North Carolina that year, a member of the Moravian Brethren accused an apprentice of cutting down a small pine tree on Christmas Eve, the day on which trees were customarily erected in Germany.
0: Hmm, Interesting.
1: And there's also evidence of one in Georgia in 1805. So th- this is, this is interesting. We often think of... Of uh, of things, sort of, you know, establishing themselves in England and then becoming a thing here in the United States, uh, you know. But of course, there were people from from various European countries coming in to North America, so it, it ultimately makes perfect sense that the Christmas tree would arrive here around the same time, or even a little earlier.
0: Well, yeah. So, <clears throat> based on what I've reading, it seems like Christmas trees really started making their way to the United States being brought with German immigrants, not, mm-hmm. not so much, uh, coming directly from England, though a few right. people in England were trying to, to pick it up. Um, uh, it looks like the, the German immigrants would bring them in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, but they weren't taken up as readily among the general population as you might imagine. And th- there was basically a history of religious discrimination against Christmas trees and other types of Christmas celebrations. After all, many of the early settlers of eastern uh, the Eastern North American colonies were English Puritans who... Most of the time, we're not fans of the sort of, you know, bestial pagan implications of a hallowed tree. You know, they were thinking, like, if you're going to put a tree up in your house, why not just celebrate Christmas by having a decapitation contest? <laughs> with the Green night? Yeah. Uh so and a few examples of this. Uh William Bradford, you know, the, the, the king of the Puritans, the 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 pilgrim governor of uh the Plymouth colony. Mm-hmm. Uh he was famous slash infamous, depending on your point of view. Apparently in one instance, Bradford just went ballistic and chewed out a bunch of people in the Plymouth colony. For trying to take the day off on Christmas. So, you know, Bob Cratchit's out in the street hanging out on Christmas morning and Bradford sees him and just his eyes glow red. <laughs> uh, and so he, he's writing incredulously that instead of working, he found people on Christmas Day, quote, in the street at play openly, some pitching the bar and some at stool ball and such like sports. And he regarded these celebrations of Christmas as some kind of, quote, pagan mockery of God and the spirit of Jesus. So, I think Bradford's idea of Christmas is you go to work and then maybe you go to church, but you you, you do not decorate, you do not play, you do not take the day off, you do not sing. That, that is all satanic mischief. Yeah, he really sounds like the Grinch here. Yeah, totally. Uh, And there were some other examples that I found uh, cited in a a history.com article I I was reading called The History of Christmas Trees. So one of them was about Oliver Cromwell, not in the colonies, but back in England, English Puritan leader – one of the victors of the English Civil War and becoming Lord Protector. He, he did not like what he called the heathen traditions of things like Christmas carols or decoration of trees or, uh, you know, running around acting merry. That, that was all kind of desecration of what he called the sacred event of Christmas. Um, And this article also says, quote, In 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts enacted a law making any observance of December 25th other than a church service a penal offense. People were fined for hanging decorations. The stern solemnity continued until the 19th century when the influx of German and Irish immigrants undermined the Puritan legacy.
1: Oh, man, this this is rich uh, again, especially when you look at some of the like legitimate angst that emerges around, you know, so-called wars on Christmas and, uh, <laughs> and so yeah. forth today.
0: Oh, well, it's a, this is funny because while I was reading about this, looking at for these historical sources, I also just happened to stumble across like fundamentalist christian blogs called things like christmas tree truth and stuff like that they're still railing against christmas trees as a as a trap door into some kind of covert satanic mass it was yeah th- th- that's a whole corner of the internet that is worth exploring
1: yeah christmas trees are just a gateway to fun joy and other
0: satanic concepts yeah. Uh, but so by the mid to late 1800s, there there had been a real transition. By the late 1800s, Christmas trees started becoming popular in homes throughout the United States, not just among uh, German immigrants and their descendants. Christmas became a federally recognized national holiday in 1870. I think that was signed into law by Grant. And so, of course, as Christmas and Christmas trees became more mainstream, and, you know, you're not necessarily part of an immigrant community who has a centuries-long tradition of how exactly to festoon the branches, you know, going back to your grandparents and all that, the question is going to become, how do you decorate this thing?
1: Well, you know, we're talking about Christmas tree lights. So the immediate predecessor to electric Christmas tree lights, it's, of course, going to be candles. <laughs> accentuated, this is interesting, I hadn't really thought about this, but accentuated by special glass beads that were strung around the tree. Uh, Flanders mentions this, uh, pointing out that uh, Czech glassblowers specialized in these. Uh, not only were they beautiful, but they were they were something, they were actually something on the tree that would not burn if things got out of control. <laughs> because, of course, fire is a big risk when you're talking about decorating a tree with little candles. And it's it's actually you know, I, I knew this innately, like that's dangerous. That sounds like an out of control fire waiting to happen, but I hadn't really thought about all the various ways in which it is dangerous. Uh, Flanders points out that, that, uh, First of all, with candle lights and hearth fires in general, fire was just a much greater daily risk uh, back then. But then you had these little candles wired or tied to individual tree branches, which, again, in and of itself, dangerous. (laughs) But then as the candles melt, their weight alters. And uh, and so so that's going to alter the tilt of the branch that they're affixed to, um, and that's you know potentially move, uh, moving that little ball of fire around and putting it in contact with other branches and decorations and things. On top of that, wax is dripping down from these candles onto lower branches and uh, and and uh, in, in increasing their weight as well. So the the risks. You know, go way beyond merely, you know, a, a situation of candles balanced in a dried out tree. It becomes a moving system to contend with, with with uh, branches with one candle slowly moving up, uh, branches beneath slowly dipping down with accumulating mm. wax. Um, <laughs> it's frightening. Yeah. So Flanders writes, quote, a series of innovations and contrivances designed to hold each candle in place with greater stability appeared over the years. But a lit tree was never a safe tree. Many households lit their candles only once on Christmas Eve, prudently keeping to hand water and a stick with a sponge on the end of it. Um, which sounds great. Like that, that should be like a Christmas character that should be like have its own decoration, like the,
0: the sponge stick guy for uh, putting out the tree fire. uh, calls to mind weird associations with the crucifixion scene and the the, like a sponge with gall on it yeah yeah Yeah. all right so obviously again this is a terribly um,
1: dangerous situation but it is the immediate predecessor to the electric christmas tree lights so this we can basically look back to um the late 1800s on this one in 1882 the edison illuminating company built the world's first electrical power station and four months later they lit up a christmas tree It consisted of 80 red, white, and blue bulbs and was installed in the home of Edward H. Johnson, an inventor and Edison's business partner. Uh, But at this point, electricity was simply not established enough for regular folks to get in on the action. This was a special tree. So it was only for special events and places such as an an 1891 electric tree erected in the children's ward of a New York City hospital or in 1895, the White House put up an electric tree. This would have been Grover Cleveland's White House. Hundreds of multicolored electric bulbs. According to the Library of Congress, some historians credit this tree with spurring the acceptance of indoor Christmas tree lights. Mm, Okay, but still you had to be either rich or. Or an electricity nut, or I guess ideally both, to have this sort of lighting set up at that time. According to the Library of Congress, a light uh, to light an average Christmas tree with electric lights before 1903 would have cost something like two thousand dollars in today's dollars. Wow! But but then at the turn of the century, General Electric buys out Edison, and in 1903 they begin offering
0: pre-assembled kits of Christmas lights. Hmm. Okay. Sorry, I'm trying to imagine. So one of the things that predated electric lighting indoors in homes was you would have uh, gas supplied lamps, right? So you'd actually kind of like the wiring in today's home, you'd run gas pipes up through the walls and they'd have a little output where you could attach a lamp and they they would be powered indoors. Could you have a gas powered Christmas tree? So like the gas pipe runs up the trunk and then it goes out through some of the branches. They're just pipes around through them, and then they're just lamps all up and down. I like this idea of an unholy
1: gas punk Christmas tree. Um, I did not. She does not mention it as being a reality. But man, there's got to be some wacky inven- inventor who who
0: tried it and exploded. If not, I really just doubt the ambition of inventors in the 1880s. <laughs> Um, so anyway, they put out this kit and uh, Fleming
1: quotes the brochure that comes with it. It says, quote, miniature incandescent lamps are perfectly adapted to Christmas tree lighting. The element of danger ever present with candles is entirely removed, as well as the inconvenience of grease, smoke and dirt. The lamps are all lighted at once by turning of a switch, will burn as long as desired without attention and can be readily extinguished. No stick with a
0: sponge required. Uh, that sounds far preferable.
1: Uh, Flanders details this as a string of 28 one-candle power miniature Edison lamps. It costs $12, and I believe that breaks down to something like $350 in today's money, which, to be clear, is a, is the sort of some people are still paying and well beyond that for their various holiday decorations.
0: When you were growing up, was there anybody in the town where you lived who was like the house that everybody in town knew about that would just go bonkers at Christmas and put up what looks like a million dollars worth of Christmas decorations? decorations in the yard and everybody drive oh, yeah. by at night yeah yeah there were several of those uh
1: griswold households around you would have, you would drive yeah. out to see them they were destinations of course now we have so many inflatable decorations which are cool uh but um i feel like that takes takes away some it doesn't take anything away from the decorations obviously but uh there are all these other exciting ways to decorate a house for the holidays now that don't necessarily involve lights but at the time even in 1903 it sounds like you had some pretty cool options uh Fleming points uh to uh, some Austrian produced strings of lights quote with bulbs shaped like fruit flowers and animals or snowmen <laughs> or santas. <laughs> and the cool thing about these these were apparently battery powered and could be used in houses that didn't have electricity which is wow. which is uh, again an interesting innovation because again 1903 yeah and uh, by the start of World War One, around 1914, prices dropped to the affordable range of $1.75. So it just became, you, know, you can just see the situation. More and more houses are getting electricity. Uh, more and more households are cool with the idea of having electricity in, in the home on the Christmas tree. I also understand that there was an insurance boost to having electric lights on your tree as opposed to candles. And then it just becomes more and more affordable. So more and more people buy into this. Mm. According to the Library of Congress, American uh, Albert Sadaka also helped popularize tree lights. His family owned a novelty lighting store, so he was well positioned to cash in on this. As a teenager in 1917, he reportedly realized the demand. And in 1920, uh, uh, Albert and his brothers organized the National Outfit Manufacturers Association, or NOMA. Uh, which became the Noma Electric Company, and they ended up cornering the Christmas light market until the 1960s. Wow. And Noma was responsible for a number of key innovations during their reign of uh, Christmas terror, uh, <laughs> including bubble lights. Do you remember bubble lights, Joe? I don't know what that is, no. You don't? Oh, okay. I believe I had an aunt uh, or two even that still had these on their trees when I was a kid. Uh, these were a 1946 innovation. These were... Uh, these consisted of liquid-filled vials of toxic methylene chloride. Uh, and the methylene chloride uh, has a very low boiling point, so the heat of an electric bulb is enough to make it bubble, which looks cool on a Christmas
0: tree. Uh, but again, toxic <laughs> vials of bubbling liquid. Methylene chloride is also known as dichloromethane, and it uh, I think it is used as a paint thinner or like a <laughs> paint stripper. Yeah, so... Um, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm not jealous that I don't have these in my house. Um, and I'm not sure there might be some more acceptable form of bubble lights out there today. Uh, but I would love to hear from anyone out there who has memories of bubble lights. Uh, or has some sort of updated version of the technology now, or just anybody who has uh, has memories of, of older models of Christmas tree lighting. Because, of course, nowadays, it's all pretty much LED. Uh, they, the system seems to be pretty much refined. The technology seems to be pretty stable with just varying degrees of, like, smart technology involved in how they function. Like, I think you can, nowadays, you can get an artificial tree with lighting still, you know, already installed on it. And you can de- you can decide like the frequency of the twinkle. You can decide like what the 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 colors are going to be. Just you know
0: on the fly. Oh, sorry to whip us back. I think I just remembered another use of dichloromethane, which I think it's the liquid that's in the dippy bird. Oh, 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 yeah, the the dippy bird, the the
1: the, the water drinking bird automaton. Yeah. Huh. Well, there you go. That makes
0: sense. Well, anyway, I'm going to order some dangerous vintage bubble lights. I'm sure you can get them on eBay. Oh.
1: Oh, be careful.
0: Please be careful out there.
1: Um, I, you know, I'd also love to hear from anybody who still decorates at all with candles. Um, I imagine some people still do this at least for that one lighting, but who, I, I, I just don't know. I don't think I'm brave
0: enough to try it. Even if I did have a sponge on a stick. Okay. So put down your sponge on a stick because I want you to picture another element of a classic Christmas tree. Picture like the vintage 1950s American Christmas tree, the kind like you'd see in A Christmas Story and that kind of thing. What, what do you see mm-hmm. when you picture that in your mind? Maybe these multicolored electric lights, maybe big old ball-shaped ornaments kind of making the, the branches all droop down under their weight. And then there's that other stuff, stuff that makes it look like the tree is dripping, shiny, metallic <laughs> gack. Like a cassette tape has barfed silver pasta all over the festive branches. Yes, and, and over the floor
1: and um, and just over the house in general. Uh, you're talking, of course, about, about tinsel, or I think when I was growing up, we called them icicles for some reason, but tinsel,
0: yes. So I've got to start off by saying I don't know how many people still actually use this stuff, but I, I do know it still exists. You can buy it. I looked it up. But I mainly associate it with... Christmas trees you would see in old Polaroids from boomer childhoods.
1: Yeah, we, we definitely used it. I was talking about tinsel with my wife last night and in both of our households growing up. Yeah, we just tinseled the hell out of those trees. Like mm. they looked like somebody had you know, you just shellacked them with uh, with with shiny
0: metal drippings. So what is tinsel and where did it come from and where did it go? Well, so remember that the tradition of the Christmas tree, it ties into even older traditions, but it goes back at least as far as the 16th century in Germany. Um, so, So what came before tinsel in this context? Apparently literal icicles, uh, because one thing I've read is that a a common understanding of the purpose of tinsel is to resemble icicles hanging from the branches of an evergreen tree and glimmering in the sun. Now, if the tree is inside your house, it will not do to have icicles hanging from it unless you have a really, really cold house or you, you don't mind having a really wet floor after they melt. So this is the next best thing, right? Shiny, glittering filaments that reflect the firelight and make your tree twinkle with Christmas cheer. Absolutely. And it's kind of an upgrading of those check beads that we talked about earlier, right? Right. Those were glass beads, right? Yeah. Uh, so these are originally going to be very metal. I, I was reading, um, n- not metal, like metal music that made of metal. Uh, I was, uh, reading a mental floss article about this by Michelle Debchak about the history of, of, uh, tinsel on Christmas trees. And she puts out a few interesting facts. One of which is that today tinsel is very cheap. You know, I looked it up. You can get it from target for $3 for a packet or something, but it was once absolutely a luxury item, much like Christmas lights themselves. In 17th century Germany, there are records of trees being decorated with pressed strips made from real silver, and remember, you know, one of the classic appeals of silver and gold is the way they could shine beautifully, they'd reflect the light in a way that was pretty, and this was before the invention of cheaper metal and plastic foils. So I was looking for more on the history here of uh, about tinsel, and I found an interesting book by Bernd Brunner called Inventing the Christmas Tree, published by Yale University Press in 2012. And uh, Brunner has some interesting things to point out here. Brunner says that, quote, tinsel was probably inspired by the so-called Lianische Drata – uh, which he says was introduced by Huguenots from Lyon. I think Lyonis-Hydrata means Leonese wire. And this would be, quote, silver or gold-plated copper wire that was originally a byproduct of metalwork. It is reminiscent of the silver thread that was woven into church vestments in the Middle Ages. For a long time, tinsel, also called silver-plated sauerkraut in colloquial <laughs> German... Was cut from tinfoil, it is reminiscent of a thin icicle, but it could just as well bring forth summary associations and Then he quotes a uh, German writer who's a like a German realist author named Theodore Storm in a passage from eighteen eighty four where he's describing uh, some stuff going on around christmas he he says quote On the Sunday before Christmas, my friend Peterson brought a sack filled with a marvelous silver thread. The tree wrapped in this fine silver thread looked like a flying summer. Hmm. Uh, But Brunner also notes that a variation on the silver tinsel was known as angel's hair, fairy's hair, or baby Jesus's hair. (laughs) And he says this was also a, a, a type of fine metal thread.
1: Ah, oh, now that's that's internet. First of all, I mean, I just I'm picturing Jesus, adult Jesus, with like a full head and beard of like straight up silver metal hair. But it also reminds me. Um, I, I I remember talking to someone from the Czech Republic, and they were talking about the tradition of the the baby Jesus lowering uh, gifts down. I think on like a golden or metallic string. So I wonder mm-hmm. if that's connected to this tradition.
0: Well, like Jesus with a fishing pole, like the man on the moon. Kind of, Just I guess, you know, down.
1: baby Jesus from on high uh, using like a this silver cord, really like a space elevator.
0: <laughs> That's very good. Uh, but so to come back to this, the silver tinsel. So there were a lot of problems with genuine silver tinsel. One of the obvious ones I mentioned already is how expensive it would have been. but also Debchak points out another thing which is that silver tarnishes very quickly. So if you put it up on the Christmas tree, it might tarnish before Christmas actually came around.
1: Mm, okay so but then again, if you're if you're putting up your tree on the like the traditional German Christmas Eve erection night, then it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, they don't call it erection night, obviously, but I mean that is the night that you erect the uh-huh. Christmas tree.
0: Okay, yeah, maybe. I, I'm not sure when uh, exactly the the tinsel would go up and in what context, but uh, but you know there were problems with it maintaining its uh, its sheen for as long as you would want it to, especially since it's expensive stuff. Mm, yeah, so um, I mean, this might be problems with trying to use it year after year. If it was yeah. made of actual silver, you would probably want to do that, right? Uh, But in the early 1900s, manufacturers in the United States were making tinsel out of cheaper and more durable shiny metals like aluminum and copper. Uh, But there were still some problems with the new models because aluminum paper-based tinsel was highly flammable. Again, (laughs) this is going to cause problems when you want to light up your tree, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But then also – during World War One, copper was in high demand for wartime production, and so that made it a poor choice for you know frivolities like holiday decorations. So, so what could come in to save the day? What other metals could come in to be your cuddle friend for Christmas time? Oh, 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 I don't know. Um, cobalt. I know you. I know you know where I'm going with this. Oh, <laughs> not lead. Yep, lead. Oh, uh, so uh, to read from Deb Jack's article here, quote. Lead revived tinsel from obscurity, and soon it was embraced as a standard Christmas component along with ornaments and electric lights. It became so popular in the 1950s and 60s that tinsel is often thought of as a mid-century fad rather than a tradition that's been around as long as Christmas trees themselves. Hmm. With so many synthetic decorations becoming available around Christmas time, tinsel, made from metal, was considered one of the safer items to have in the home. A 1959 newspaper article on holiday safety reads, Quote, tinsel was fairly safe because even if the kitties decide to swallow it, it will not cause poisoning. Oh. Uh, <laughs> folks, you, you probably should not use tinsel based on lead at all, and you definitely should not let the kitties decide to swallow it. Um, and right. this became – Quite clear, obviously. By the end of the 60s, I mean, starting in the mid-60s, you had great scientists like Claire C. Patterson, uh, you know, the lord of lead, who we've talked about before, talking about the, the dangers of lead in the environment and dangers of lead being incorporated into the body. By the early 70s, the message was really out and there was, you know, widespread backlash against the, the total infiltration of lead into every corner of our existence. Uh, I mean this is the era when you get like the banning of leaded gasoline and things like that. Um, and of course of course this eventually also led to the discontinuation of lead in many consumer goods including tinsel. So if you buy tinsel today it's probably going to be made out of Mylar or polyvinyl chloride with a shiny finish. Uh, you know you're going to get probably some kind of plastic product. But despite the fact that you can still buy it, I have noticed I don't really see it very much anymore. I mean, obviously somebody's still using it because you can still get it. But like, my question is, what happened to tensile? Uh, I wonder if modern versions of it just have too many associations with like the post-war plastic boom kind of energy if it just seems too synthetic. Uh, because Brunner writes a, of, of a countervailing force against tinsel in all of its forms in in one paragraph in his book. He says, quote, At the end of the eighteen seventies, there is documentation from Corinthian Gale Valley in southern Austria that a thick spruce, free of all decoration, was placed in the corner of a farmstead as a sign of silent joy. On frosty, cold winter mornings, the tree, now covered with little icicles and illuminated by the sun's rays, shimmered like a Christmas tree covered in lights without any tinsel or fairy's hair. The wild beauty of the tree sufficed. And this kind of brings us back to what we were talking about at the beginning, like the the fake tree versus the real tree. Uh, I mean, I, I feel that real tree drive, even though habits have prevented me from ever going there. And the real tree drive, I think, feeds into a, maybe, a, maybe a more total rejection of things that remind you of synthetic industrial products when you're decorating for Christmas.
1: Yeah, I do admire those really organic trees you see sometimes where they're, they're using like strung popcorn around it. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah, maybe getting back to the use of apples and, and so forth. Uh, you know, it's – yeah, I do like that, the idea that you could basically just eat the whole tree. After after Christmas, just eat it up. Or just, yeah. I guess it's, you know, completely compostable in, <laughs> to some
0: degree as well. Yeah, let the fungus have it. <laughs> uh, but there's one more passage I want to read before we move on. This doesn't really have much to do with tinsel, but I was reading parts of this book, Inventing the Christmas Tree by Bernd Bruner, and um, I came across one section where I met the Hannibal Lecter of Christmas Trees, <laughs> just the most astonishingly anal retentive Christmas fanatic in history. Do you mind if I read this just because I thought it was amazing? Oh, oh, let's
1: let's do it. Let's lean into the holidays,
0: yeah. Okay, okay. So this is Bruner this is Brunner himself writing this introduction to the passage. Brunner says Some specialists transformed decoration of the Christmas tree into an exceptional skill. Among them was the German Hugo Elm, who in his 1878 Golden Christmas Book made a plea for, quote, a tasteful separation of the numerous decorations on the tree in order to avoid a bland hodgepodge. He suggested the following steps precisely designed for the anatomy of the tree and the load capacity of its branches. And here the quote begins. Decoration should begin with the heaviest objects, which are best placed near the trunk and in the middle of a branch. Next, one should place the nuts. Place silver and gold nuts alternating, about three to four pieces on the longer and two to three on the shorter branches and on the top, smallest branches only, one each. The golden and silver pine cones, in contrast, should be placed farther forward in the second third of the branch, as calculated from the trunk outward. Marzipan and sweets are best placed in between two nuts. Shiny glass balls, fruits, and the like are to be placed preferably on the upper branches in order to enjoy the effect of their refracting rays of light. Metal coils and tinsel are spread out at the tips of the secondary branches, for these are thinner and are more likely to sway than the thicker main branches. And small baskets and nets made of paper are placed on secondary branches. The individual stars should be distributed evenly, while the strings of alternating nuts, straw, stars paper, and similar, are to be wound around the branches and distributed. Paper bags should always be put on the tips of the branches, ideally beneath the lights. At the top of the tree, one customarily puts a large star made of cardboard covered with golden paper in which one glues either a self-made or bought Christmas angel, a thick tome with golden fringe, and an old Gothic script displaying the sublime Christmas saying, Glory to God in the High also looks magnificent once the lights have been put on the tree the tops of the branches can be covered with loosely pulled cotton and these then affixed with silver thread this is my design <laughs> <laughs> okay so here's my idea actually in the tradition of batman versus superman Freddy versus Jason, Godzilla versus King Kong. We've got to have a big movie Christmas extravaganza. Hugo Elm <laughs> versus William Bradford, right? <laughs> the the man who hated Christmas versus the man who will kill you if you put the nuts and the stars in the wrong order. Oh wow.
1: Wow. Yeah, I've <laughs> I I love that reading. It's just so um pedantic. So <laughs> <laughs> so tyrannical uh, <laughs> concerning the the decoration of the christmas tree. Right there at the end though he, he mentioned the star, the angel, the tree topper. Mm-hmm. Joe what's what's your tree topper?
0: Oh, um you know, I don't know the answer. I could go check right now. Let me let me I'm going to have to go check. going have to ask back. you to go check. Play some waiting music in the meantime. All right.
1: may have caught him in a lie. There may be no Christmas
0: tree, and he's not coming back. Oh, it's anticlimactic. It's a star. Yeah, the star
1: and the angel are, are typical. You do see some other quirky uh, ch- Christmas tree toppers. I I, uh, I have some family members who use a TARDIS at the top of their tree. Nice. Uh, they, cons- they consider that the, the, the pinnacle. Um, But, of course, one of the big ones is, is either the star or the angel. So for our final section in this episode, I wanted to talk about the angelic tree topper. So remember when we discussed the Victorian Christmas tree? Apparently it was during this time that the angel really became popular as a Christmas tree topper. And it remains a popular choice to this day, though for the most part... These are generally the most boring sort of angelic depictions you could ask for. Never the fearsome or surreal angels that one often finds in other treatments and art and, and artistry and even in um, sacred literature. Now, these are generally like little dress up
0: dolls with wings and a halo this is not the terrifying messenger who carves the seven peas into Dante's forehead. Right. Right. Which again, I say missed
1: opportunity there. I'd love to hear from anyone who has a more terrifying angel at the top of their tree. I guess you could put, uh, I know they have ornaments of the, the, what, what are they? The weeping angels from Dr. Who. So maybe some, uh, uh, some Dr. Who fans out there have, have those at the top. Oh, that's not a bad idea. But uh, to discuss what came before this, this, Invention. Basically, we're using this as an excuse to talk about angels and Christmas tree angels. Basically, the angel at the top of the Christmas tree is there because the angel Gabriel factors into the Christmas story. Gabriel is the angel of annunciation, the messenger of the almighty God that informs Mary that she is pregnant with the son of God. And uh, just to give you a taste of the, uh, the original uh, Bible literature here, this is from the King James <laughs> Version, uh, Luke 1, through 27. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was
0: Mary. I believe it's also in the Gospel of Luke that the angel later at the birth of Jesus appears to the shepherds and tells them the good news that unto them a Savior is born.
1: Right, and I think that that – if I'm not mistaken, that angel is not named, but it's often assumed that it might be the same angel or I guess maybe angels working for Gabriel. Uh, It's all a little vague. (laughs) Uh, but, but Gabriel is often referred to as the Herald, uh, a.k.a. Herald Angel. You may have heard of him. He's in heart <laughs> The Herald Angel sings. Um, but uh, Gabriel is also sometimes referred to as the angel of death or the, you know, the one who will blow the final trumpet before the end of time. He's also sometimes described as a deathbed angel who eases people into the next life.
0: Yeah, the actual characteristics and individual identities of the angels and their hierarchies are not really explored in what's usually considered canonical biblical literature, but a lot of sort of apocryphal and, you know, extra-canonical works. Now,
1: here's a fun fact. According to Carol Rose, who I often refer to for various mythical and uh, uh, you know, fanciful creatures, uh, Rose points out that the word angel derives from the Greek uh, anglos and would have been pronounced with a hard G up until the end of the 13th century in line with Old English and Teutonic traditions, but then the French influence
0: softens it. Hmm, that's interesting. Now, when you see the word angel appearing in like the Bible that comes from a word that originally just means messenger. So, mm-hmm. like the the angels are the the messengers of the divine realm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that message takes the form of uh, announcing a birth. Sometimes it's more the the destruction of an entire city, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I have to say, growing up in Christianity, I often gravitated towards the weirdness of angels. Because they were supernatural outsiders, demigod-like travelers, and there's, of course, a ton of interesting material built up around them, from their depiction throughout art history, uh, to their place in occult magic, to their treatment in modern popular culture, and also in the, the spiritual warfare fundamentalist theology that was popular back in the 1990s, and I guess is probably still popular in some circles. Oh, yeah. But, you know, angels were just this deeply weird concept that was just an accepted aspect of religious
0: reality. Well, yeah, there is a funny irony in, like, uh, the insistence of the idea of monotheism, Mm -hmm. and yet there are these heavenly beings called angels, and you might say, well, but they're heavenly beings but not gods – and then you just get into sort of like hair splitting over what the meaning of god is because a lot of the things that are called gods in what are openly acknowledged as polytheistic religions actually in many ways are similar to what people believe about angels in say Christianity
1: <laughs> yeah because if you're if you were like like I was sometimes if you're bored in church and you pick up the bible and you're like well I'm going to read some angel stories uh, you're going to be a little disappointed because there's there's actually not much angelic action in the Bible. Just a handful of occurrences, and there's nothing to explain why they exist. There's no origin story or anything for the
0: angels. Though, if you want to get into stuff outside the biblical canon about mm-hmm. uh, where the angels come from and all that, you get some into some wild and awesome territory. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of lot of great fan fiction that, it, that emerged throughout history about this. We're like, we got to explain these guys, where they come from. Um, so, so I was looking into this a little bit for, for this episode, and uh, I, I read uh, The Archangel Gabriel in History and Tradition by Roxana Eliana Yavashi. Uh, and Yavashi points out that the reason that angels are basically taken for granted, both in Judaic and Christian traditions, is that you did not need to explain them. They are already part of our supernatural understanding of everyday reality in the world the author points out that hebrew ideas of angels were influenced by uh, babylonian angelology and uh, and also by zoroastrianism hmm. so the idea as they explain it is that while angelic beings demigods and uh, you know various intermediaries that serve primarily as messengers or sometimes agents of another sort they certainly factor into various religious systems including the polytheism of ancient egypt uh, you know they're they're but but while they are they factor into polytheistic Um, pantheons. They are a necessity, they write, for monotheistic uh, religions, as the monotheistic god is ultimately faceless, or at least does not reveal its face to humans. So for a god of gods to do human-like things, it has to send a human-like messenger.
0: Oh, that, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Now, I would say that the idea of the monotheistic god as a, like, faceless, you know, disembodied kind of spirit that has no form of its own is a much later understanding of that. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the, the earlier visions of that god would give would give him a body and give him much more recognizably human-like features.
1: Right, yeah. And as the author points out, again, you have various messengers and agents poly- popping up in various polytheistic religions. And, of course, I instantly thought about the avatars in Hinduism, by which a single divine entity may take various forms, you know, some much more human than others. Mm-hmm. The author points out, though, that, uh, you know, that this ultimately shows the continued role of transcendence in religion. There's this increasing distance in religious tradition uh, between the world of the gods and the world of humans. So if you look back to Greek myths, uh, you know, there was a lot of interplay between the gods and humans, a lot of drama, direct drama between gods and humans. You look to the Egyptian model, and there's also this sense that this is all happening in the same world, in our world. But then there's this growing distance between the place where God is and the place where humans reside and it then necessitates these holy intermediaries mm. where instead of god showing up and saying hey i'm a bit ticked at you over this an angel's like hey um god sent me yeah yeah he's not really happy about this whole apple thing or uh, he said to call off the whole sacrifice your kid thing yeah yeah i just got the message too
0: middle management yes <laughs>
1: Now, just as angels don't really have a huge presence in the Bible, uh, they're also rarely named. Uh, Gabriel is the first angel mentioned in the book of Daniel, and he, he doesn't have a lot of peers. Uh, I mean, mostly it's just Michael the archangel as the other named angel. Um, And as the author points out here, Gabriel winds up doing quite a bit of the heavy lifting. He interprets Daniel's visions in the Old Testament. He appears to Zacharias and announces the birth of John the Baptist in the New Testament. Of course, appears to Mary, like we already mentioned. And then in Islamic tradition, he he reveals the Quran to the prophet Muhammad. Oh, okay, yeah. And of course, there he has other adventures outside of these books as well. Uh, various, you know, myths, legends, even you know, pop cultural examples. For instance, uh, Gabriel shows up in various bits of Jewish legend and lore, various bits of Islamic legend and lore. So he's associated with the moon in early Jewish writings, as well as in medieval Christian astrology. In Moroccan traditions, he is a Sidna Jebril, according to Carol Rose, and is said to have delivered to Adam all the tools that he needed to survive outside of paradise, which kind of makes him sound like a Prometheus figure.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. Though also, I would say in the Garden of Eden story, the, the serpent itself is very much a Prometheus figure.
1: That's right. Yeah. I I read that in uh, Northern English traditions, there's a. We've mentioned the wild hunt and various death dogs and hellhounds on the show before. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are also the Gabriel hounds, which are you know basically just death dogs uh, of the wild hunt. And then, of course, we have some very memorable uh, performances from uh, from recent film history, uh, in which somebody plays Gabriel. Uh, Tilda Swinton played a, a rebel Gabriel in 2005's Constantine, which. Um, was Keep maybe not to a f- see that. <laughs> yeah, I remember it as being fun. I haven't seen it since it came out. It's a, probably an imperfect adaptation of the comic book character, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of fun weirdness in it. I mean, Tilda Swinton as a rebel angel. Um, oh God, what's his name? Um, plays the devil. Oh, he played what's his name? He played Dino Velvet in Eight um, uh, Millimeter. Hold on, looking it up. Vigo Mortensen. No, no, you're thinking of uh, you're thinking of the next film we're going to talk about.
0: Oh, uh, in- oh, oh, geez, sorry, sorry, sorry.
1: <laughs> Peter Stormar? Yes, yes, he plays a wonderful kind of like coked up Satan in that film. <laughs> we believe in nothing, Gabriel. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a lot of fun in that. And of course, the the other big Gabriel performance that comes to mind, Christopher Walken as a rebel Gabriel in. Three out of five prophecy films with uh with Vigo Mortensen as the devil in that one, yeah. Vigo played the devil in the first one, and um, uh, yeah, I think what who else was in that? Uh, a number of, of actors uh, showed up see. in that franchise.
0: Uh, man, I'm seeing lots of names uh, Virginia Madsen of Highlander mm-hmm. 2 fame, yeah, er- Eric Stoltz, uh, Eric Stoltz, that's right, yeah, <laughs> Elias Coteas, yeah, uh, Amanda
1: Plummer, wow. And for, uh, written and directed by uh, the man who wrote Highlander, so it has strong Highlander really? connections there.
0: Yeah, that's so we'll canon. <laughs> that's I mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's like like this. Like we've said before, there's the idea that to understand a mythology, you have to you have to accept all forms of the mythology. You have to include all forms of the myth. So we ultimately have to incorporate um, the prophecy films into our understanding of of angelic lore.
0: I was just thinking about something that's kind of odd. Maybe this actually isn't all that interesting. Just let me put it together. So in order to have a really good understanding of a mythological tradition, you need to know all of the versions of the myth that you can and hold them all in your head at the same time. Understand where they come from, how they fit together, and how the myth varies in in all of its different faces. But as we talked about last time, one way in which you have to just pick one version of the myth – is if you're going to engage in storytelling, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can't tell all versions of the story at the same time. That's not enjoyable as a story. So you have to pick one way there. But the other time when you really have to pick one version of the myth is if it's official dogma and people have to believe it. If people have to believe it, they have to believe it one way or another, in which case you also have to pick one version of the story. So I think that's kind of interesting that whether you are trying to keep a child entertained or whether you want to lay down the law, that's when you have to pick one version and ignore all the others.
1: One uh, exception to this that I like that you, you see occurring in various treatments Uh, But uh, one of the most noteworthy is probably um, that second Batman from um, from Christopher Nolan, uh, Mm. the one in which Heath Ledger plays the Joker. Mm. Uh, The Joker gives his own origin story, what, a couple or maybe three different times. Mm -hmm. And it's always different. It's a a play on that. Some say they came from such and such. Some say it was this, you know, uh, establishing multiple possible uh, mythologies behind a character,
0: which which I kind of like. Well, I think that Joker is, uh, uh, about to sound really cool. I think that Heath Ledger Joker is supposed to embody chaos and ah. if, uh, canonical unity is order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what that really means is in order to understand the mythology, you need to understand the chaos of canonical diversity.
1: Yeah. All right. Sounds good to me. Let's, uh, let's put that on the tree. <laughs> uh, chaos angel to go right at the top. Um, because, again, yeah, I'd love to see some some Christmas angel tree toppers that uh, invoked some of these other ideas. I mean, there's some really beautiful, weird visions of angels out there and in, in, in certainly, you know, traditional artistic treatments, but also more modern stuff. I'm thinking about the, the various like the seraphims of uh, of, of Michael W. Kaluta. Um Certainly you could put a Christopher Walken up there at the top. I think that would be great. All right. Well, uh, Joe, I think we've completely decorated this Christmas tree for the year. The trimming is complete. And now it it really, it only remains for us to put some presents underneath this tree. And by that, I, of course, mean listener mail. We would love to hear from everyone out there. If you have some sort of a Christmas tree or holiday decoration tradition uh, that ties into what we've discussed here, we'd love to hear from you about it. Uh, You know, It's certainly not just christmas decorations i'm all, i'm very interested in very secular holiday um, decoration traditions or some version of holiday traditions that also meld with other systems of faith or mythologies or fandoms i think
0: that's all on the table and i want to hear about it does anybody decorate their tree according to the strict instructions of hugo elm with no deviations whatsoever if so i want to know about that <laughs> Oh man, I I, I want to see a Hugo Elm tree now. You know,
1: the, 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 mm-hmm. it's it's basically like to come back to the Bible. It's like the the uh, the instructions of how to to build the tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant. You know, mm-hmm. it's so specific <laughs> that surely somebody's recreated it. You shall decorate as the commandant says. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, I think you can still go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that'll send you over to our iHeart page. And if you go there, there's a place to click for our store, and you can buy a shirt or something with our logo on it or a cool monster on it. There are a couple of of listener-created designs in the mix as well that are pretty exciting.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas, Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank <laughs>